0: Rock is lit!
1: Welcome to Rock is Lit, the podcast that takes listeners on the quest to find the very best rock novels and explore the propulsive energy and raw power of these stories about music, the people who make it, and the characters who love it. Rock is Lit is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Christy Alexander-Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page from Livingston Press. Find me on Facebook at Christy Alexander-Hallberg, and Twitter and Instagram at Hallberg. Visit my website at ChristieAlexanderHalberg.com. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, follow, and spread the word. This is a special episode of Rock is Lit. Usually I interview authors about their rock novels. This time I'm going to be the author in the hot seat and take questions about my rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page, a story that follows 18-year-old protagonist Luna Kane from her family's farm in eastern North Carolina all the way to England to search for Led Zeppelin's enigmatic guitarist, Jimmy Page, whom her free-spirited deceased mother hinted may be Luna's father. The novel was published one year ago, on October 20th, 2021. Here to help me celebrate the book's first birthday are three people who, in more ways than one, have been an amazing support system and cheerleading squad before, during, and after the publication of the novel. It's only fitting that they be the ones to give me the rock is lit treatment. In the last segment of the podcast, music industry legend Danny Goldberg drops by to talk about his experience working with Led Zeppelin in the 1970s as the band's PR man and vice president of Zeppelin Swan Song Records. But first, I'm joined by my Searching for Jimmy Page posse and East Carolina University English Department cohorts, Randall Martosha, Margaret Bauer, and Liza Whelan. Randall Martosha lives in my hometown of Greenville, N.C., and teaches writing, literature, and film studies at East Carolina University. He writes fiction and poetry and makes short films which can be found on YouTube. Randall and I have known each other from elementary school through high school. We were reunited as office mates in 2000 when I was hired to teach writing and literature in the English department at ECU, and we've been good friends ever since. He's been well aware of my Jimmy Page fixation for longer than he cares to remember, I'm quite sure. Thanks for being such a long-time and valued member of my posse and for being here today, Randall.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure.
1: Margaret Bauer has been editor of the North Carolina Literary Review for 25 years. I've had the honor of working with her as part of the editorial staff of the journal for a good bit of those years. In fact, all four of us are or have been on the NCLR staff. Margaret's service to NC as NCLR editor has been recognized with the NC Award for Literature, given by the governor, and the Caldwell Award for the Humanities, which is the highest honor bestowed by NC Humanities. She is also a distinguished professor and Reeves Chair of Southern Literature at ECU. Margaret read and critiqued every blessed chapter of Searching for Jimmy Page in draft stage from its memoir incarnation to the novel it finally became. Margaret, I'm still in your debt. So thanks for doing me yet another favor and coming on the show.
3: Oh, thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. Liza Whelan, whom I've known since she began teaching at ECU in 2007, recently retired from the university but still lives in Eastern North Carolina. She has published eight works of fiction, all of them brilliant. Her most recent novel is titled Paris 7 A.M., which was named one of the best books by women of summer 2019 by O, the Oprah Magazine. She's also published a collection of poems. Once I finished a full draft of Searching for Jimmy Page, Liza slugged through the manuscript, offering invaluable advice for revision. Then she gave me my first blurb, for which I am truly grateful. Welcome to the podcast, Liza. Glad to be here. Thank you. All right, before we talk about searching for Jimmy Page, Randall, Liza, and Margaret are going to lead me through a set of five questions, so here we go. Take it away, y'all. All
3: All right, I'm going to start us off with what is the first album
1: or record you bought? I saved up my allowance when I was 10 and bought Meet the Beatles. So what, what was the record store in town? It was a record bar in the mall, right?
2: uh yeah yeah record bar
1: yeah so i went to the record bar i, I had seen i don't know if you've seen this randall the um, 1979 dick clark productions meet the beat or what was it introducing the Beatles, birth of the beatles that was the name of it birth of the beatles was this tv movie and that was the first time that i've really seen anything about the beatles oh I have so, yeah okay well it i got hooked from that so that was my first the first album that i bought and
3: what was your most memorable live music experience?
1: Well, it's going to be shocking. It has to do with Jimmy Page. I know <laughs> nobody's going to believe that. Uh, it, no, it was Page and Plant at Virginia Beach in 1998. And they had put out an album called Walking in the Clarksdale. And that I was in the nosebleed section. But it was just so magical to be able to see him in live, not just on TV. So that was really special. But Joan Jett's really special too, because she was my first concert when I was, oh gosh, I don't know, 12 maybe is when I love rock and roll came out. And it was at ECU. And then the Rolling Stones, that was a big concert for me too, on the Steel Wheels tour in I think 89, 88 or 89 because I won tickets for that. And my mom's kind of involved in that story. You had, there was a radio station in Raleigh and they had this contest called Take a Rock to Work. And you had to put a rock on your desk at work. So my mom put a rock on her desk at work. And she wrote the names, she had me tell her who they were. And then she wrote the names of the members of the Rolling Stones on it. And they happened to come to Greenville and I won and they, they wanted to see that rock and make sure it was actually there. But yeah, that, that was a special concert too.
4: So I'll ask this question. If you had the opportunity to interview an artist or band, who would it be and what's one question you would ask?
1: The ultimate question I would ask Jimmy Page is what in the hell does Zoso mean? That's what I would ask. <laughs> he wouldn't tell me, but I'd ask. What's on your playlist now? Well, since I started doing this, podcast and everything I read is now a rock novel so whatever I'm reading whatever music is featured in that novel that's what I'm listening to so I just finished editing the episode with Janet Fitch who wrote Paint It Black so there's a lot of punk LA punk in that so I was listening to the germs and the cramps and the weirdos and and music like that but right before that episode I edited the one with um, Chris Charlesworth who wrote a rock novel on Elvis so sort of listening to a lot of Elvis music, too. Plus, I finally did see that Baz Lerman movie on Elvis. So I've been listening to a lot of that.
2: So, so which artists or band would you like to see featured in a rock and roll novel?
1: Well, it's not an artist, but I recently saw this documentary on Woodstock 1999. I, I think it's on Netflix or Hulu. It's called, it's aptly titled Trainwreck, because that was just a fiasco. So I I think it'd be interesting to read a novel with that happening in the background and think of all the bands that would make cameo appearances in a book like that, because there's this scene in Trainwreck where the Red Hot Chili Peppers play and Flea, the bass player, comes on. He is butt naked. And so it's just the craziest stuff. So that, yeah, I mean, I think that would be interesting. Let's take a short break and we'll be back with Randall Martosha, Liza Whelan, and Margaret Bauer to talk about searching for Jimmy Page. And make sure you stick around for the last segment to hear Danny Goldberg share some of his experiences working with Led Zeppelin in the 1970s. Back in a moment. No
5: matter how I try, find my way.
2: This is Margaret Bauer.
3: This is Randall Martosha. This is Liza Wieland. And you are listening to
2: it Rock Podcast is Lit.
5: Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons...
1: We're back with special guests Margaret Bauer, Liza Whelan, and Randall Martosha, who are here to help me celebrate the first birthday of my rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page. So once again, I'm going to remove my host hat and hand it over to them. Take it away, folks.
2: This hat's a little tight.
1: Squeeze it on, squeeze it on.
2: Each section of the novel is titled for a Led Zeppelin recording. How do you choose the particular titles for these sections from all the Led Zeppelin catalog? And was that a scheme from the get-go, from the first draft?
1: I knew I was gonna do that, but I waited until I wrote the section and, and then thought what would be the appropriate song to pair with that. And it just, I, I well, I knew the first section was gonna be Four Sticks because that's such an important song in in the story. Yeah. So that was a no-brainer. Um, Babe, I'm going to leave you is the next one. And I, I think I waited until I wrote that section and, and realized it, that section ended with her decision to leave and go to England. Um, so I thought, well, that's, I, I'll use Babe, I'm going to leave you. That works. But I didn't outline. I didn't, I didn't know where this was all going. I had, I had the first chapter and I had the last line. But I didn't know exactly what was going to happen in the middle, and I don't like to outline. I just kind of like to let the story go where it's going to go as I get to know the characters better. And so it—it it just when I, when I it seemed to be a logical end to that section when she made the decision to go to England, and, and so it was—it was really easy to pick the song that would go with it. And that's the same kind of story for the rest of the chapters, the rest of the sections rather.
3: Well, you said in previous interviews that originally you included Led Zeppelin lyrics in your manuscript, but couldn't get permission to use them. The lyrics are very much part of the novel. How much did the writing change once you learned you wouldn't be allowed to quote the lyrics directly? I was so
1: pissed off. Because, I (laughs) mean, you know, Margaret, you 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 were there from the beginning. You read, this book was originally a memoir, and I had lyrics out the Yahoo in it, and I remember finally giving it when I, I think when it switched to a novel and I finally gave it to Liza, (laughs) and Liza's like, there ain't no way you're going to get away with this. This is going to be so expensive. And I was so green. I didn't know anything about how difficult it would be to get permission to use lyrics or how expensive it would be. And the question of expense never even came up because I, I never got an answer to this day. I don't have an answer from the publishing company, Led Zeppelin's publishing company about. Um, whether or not I could use the lyrics, so we were just getting closer and closer to publication time, and, and my publisher finally just said, "Take out the lyrics." And I thought, "Oh my God, what this is going to change everything! It's going to really wreck it." But I got creative and kind of figured I would allude to the essence of the song, or the songs, and and, and kind of do a workaround so that I'm not actually quoting from it, but I'm, I'm referencing the imagery in the songs and, and kind of giving you a flavor. And once I did that, he seemed to think it was a better book because of it. So it wound up okay, but it was terrifying. And, and it's it's something that I would tell anybody who's tempted to use actual song lyrics. Just forget it.
2: I One thing that surprised me when um, you were saying, because I probably would have guessed that there were lyrics in the book. Because you know, I just my memory of it seemed like, yeah, you. I mean, I just kind of assumed you were using lyrics. I mean, that was just my impression uh-huh, after uh-huh. reading. Yeah. Well,
1: I hope I hope that's because I kind of got to the main images of, especially for Four Sticks" was the most important one, and I was, I knew I really wanted to use that the lyrics for that, but I, I couldn't even do that. So, but you know, they don't have a copyright on. Owls crying in the night, or rivers running red. So I could still use those little phrases and, and kind of pepper them, pepper pepper the narrative with that, without actually directly quoting from the lyrics. So I, yeah, I, I I tried to do enough of a workaround that it would still you'd still get the idea of what the song is about without actually quoting.
3: Well, let's uh, switch gears a little bit or switch directions. Um, Now you mentioned that it went from a a memoir to a novel and I want to interject here that it is definitely a novel (laughs) now. I mean it's not anything like the original memoir. Um, It's complete fiction uh, in contrast. But so where do you see Searching for Jimmy Page fitting in with other contemporary novels? There's a mystery in it, it's a coming-of-age story, there's a focus on music, but if you had to categorize it, where would you put it in terms of genre?
1: Now that I know more about rock novels, see, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a rock novel subgenre. When I started this, it wasn't until I interviewed Jeff Jackson for NCLR that I found out, oh, there's, wow, there's this whole world of rock novels. And he was just ticking off all these titles that I hadn't heard of. And I mean, good stuff, like Jennifer Egan's *A Visit from the Goon Squad* won the Pulitzer, and Dana Spiotta's National Book Award-nominated *Eat the Document*. There were all of these amazing novels that I didn't realize existed. So I would put it on. I, I realize there's not a category in a books in the bookstore that's just rock novels. There should be because there's enough of them now that there can be. But that's that's where I would put it. It, it definitely is of that ilk. Um, beyond that, no, I wouldn't categorize it as a mystery. I think there are elements in the story that involve mystery, but I I like to think of it as more literary fiction than, you know, anything else. Maybe
4: this question just got canceled out by the previous one, Um, but I I wonder if you think of the novel as as an example of southern literature, a southern novel, um and, and really I, I guess I want to know. I've been looking for this, the answer to this question for maybe my whole life. What does that mean, oh so gosh I'm not- Yeah, me too. I'm, <laughs> I'm looking for the answer to that too. I
1: th- I think it, you know, half of the novel takes place in England. And the first half is in eastern right. North Carolina. So, and there are definitely elements. I mean, I'm I'm from Greenville, as I said, and my maternal great-grandfather has become this kind of mythological figure in my life I never met him he died decades before I was born but he I modeled the great-grandfather in the novel on him Jesse Baker I even gave him the same name and he actually did try and cure my great-grandmother of breast cancer through faith healing and was just just I've always been fascinated by him And, and he just He fits into that whole kind of southern gothic realm that I I find really fascinating. But um, I wouldn't classify the novel in totality as southern fiction. And I don't know that I really know how to answer the second part of your question. Margaret's a better person for that.
2: Well, you know, our colleague, our former colleague, um, the late Jerry Mills, Jake Uh Mills, he uh, had a his idea of the signifier for a southern novel is if it has a dead mule oh yeah there are
1: no dead mules and i guess it i guess it's not (laughs) oh well they're dead people but no dead animals i don't think in the book So,
2: so i remember when you were working on the version or i remember you working on a version of the novel basically since you know i think i first read anything of yours and so um can you take us back to like that initial inspiration like of your and maybe it's the memoir yeah. or maybe it's when you turned into a full-fledged novel but yeah
1: well you know i i get asked a, a variation on this question in, in pretty much all my interviews but i love that you asked it randall because this is a an amazing situation to be in because all three of you knew bill and you you and you you knew me when i was dealing with the grief over losing my mother. Um, I mean, Liza came along a little bit on the tail end of, of that extreme period, but you all three know what a difficult period that was when my mother died of cancer in 2003, and that's re- that's really where it begins. It's, you know, I, I went to England to try and get out of that hole that I I was in, in grieving for her. And that first trip was in 2005. And it, it, the only purpose for that trip didn't have anything to do with anything I was writing. The only purpose was to just kind of shake myself out of that grief spiral that I was in. And it grew from there. It, it just seemed to be such a monumental experience for me. And, and it grew into, well, let's see, should, I, should it be a memoir? And when Bill my husband was alive. He loved that story and he always told me that I should write about it and I always thought it should be a memoir and he said, nope, it needs to be a novel and, you know, if he, well, if he said black, I'd say white, so I was determined, oh no, it's going to be a memoir and he said, I'm telling you, it needs to be a novel because you can do so much more with it and then he got sick and died and there I was again, back in kind of that precarious situation, and all three of you were there through that, and helping me through that, and knew what that experience was like, and so I wrote the memoir first, a, a, a variation on the story, and Margaret's right, it was a very different book, but it, it all had to do with with healing, and kind of using that that trip to to touch base with Jimmy Page in some way, as a kind of um, a healing experience. And, and then I realized when I got through, (laughs) Margaret, when I got through with it, and I said, I can't put this out in the world. It's not, it's not ready. It's not, that's not the story that it needs to be. And the look on your face, because I was at, I was at your river house when I told you I'm not, I'm not going to do it. And you said, well, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to turn it into a novel. And you said, how are you going to do that? I said, I don't know, but I'll figure it out. And it took what, two more years after that to, to finally, and, you know, bless your heart, as we say in the South, I, I started writing new chapters and sending it to you. And you were, you know, you were just, you were always there. You were always, okay, send it to me. I'll read it. I'll give you feedback. And we went from there, and it finally turned into a shitty novel. And <laughs> but I kept working on it, and I kept working on it. And then Liza got it, and I and I was really confirmed that it was a shitty I didn't novel. Say that. I didn't say that. No, no, no. But no, but you were everything that you told me because you were like, cut, cut, cut. And I'm thinking, well, no, but you were right. Oh, you were right. And and then you were the one who said there is no way you're going to get away with all these song lyrics. And so I cut, cut, cut that, but I didn't cut them all out. That wasn't until the end when I tried to get permission and it just didn't work out. So it's been a long haul. And I'm just, I'm so grateful to all three of you for being here now because you've you've been on this journey with me. so there was nobody else that i wanted to talk to on this episode during this part
4: that that sort of brings me back to something i was just thinking while i was listening to you talk a few minutes ago about taking out the lyrics Mm. um is is you you did that brilliantly i mean randall was completely um, you know, fooled thinking that they were still there. But but I think it just occurred to me what you did was that thing that um people writer good writers, great writers do when they want to describe a sound. They don't just say boom or shazam or whatever. They sort of talk about the the or oral qualities mm. of the sound and make it into sort of metaphor. And I think that's exactly what you did with those lyrics. Well, thank you. And it, it was at, at your
1: at your guidance, you know, you were the one who who first told me that's just not going to work. And I remember I also had Zadie Smith in there. Like she wrote a review of, of Luna's novel and you said, Zadie Smith is not going to be happy.
4: So that <laughs> so took her out. Well, you know, she's got her own. She does, but I do have a a, a question, another question um, about the historical and the fiction. I mean, I'm obviously for my own purposes, interested in making the real into the fictional. Um, And I was wondering how you thought about that, how you thought about the real Jimmy Page and the real Led Zeppelin and the real situation that Luna's mom might've walked into it and and how you blended it with the fictional and sort of what pressures did you feel to honor one over the other um, and and how risky did that feel? That's a great question coming from you
1: because you had the Unabomber in Bombshell, your novel Bombshell, and Georgia O'Keeffe in your novel Land of Enchantment. And Elizabeth Bishop in your novel Paris 7am. So you are a veteran of working real people into fictional situations. And I, you know, I I can't hold a candle to that. And the thing is, Jimmy Page doesn't really play a big role in the book. He's looming in the background. He's kind of like, you know, kind of like God, kind of hanging out over the scene. And everybody's got a different relationship with him. But he doesn't, he's really only in one one or two scenes, and he doesn't really do much. And it, you know why? It's because I was afraid of of that. What would I do with him in a real interaction? And in that respect, I kind of stuck closely to my own experience when I did go to England in two thousand and five and chased him down the hall at the hammersmith palais and and very briefly spoke to him. I, I kind of, that that moment was so important to me that I I almost didn't want to screw with it so it's it's pretty much like what happened to me um so yeah it's a novel it's it's fiction and all that but there are elements that are very real and true and factual and that was one of them do
2: you think if um Jimmy Page was say dead would you be a little freer do you think you feel freer? oh
1: hell honey i'd have had a good time (laughs) (laughs) no i don't think it would have been any different if he was living or dead
2: so the um of course the first half of the book is set in full river north carolina which is um has some parallels with greenville your hometown and yeah i don't expect you to kind of decode it for us and tell us what you know, what you modeled everything on and everything. But um, yeah, did you have some characters that were based on real people that you would like to or would care to mention?
1: Well, you know I do because we've had this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) I remember, okay, so I I did sort of an in-conversation with Randall when I did my ECU reading, and, and that reading was a big deal to me coming home and doing it there and initially it was just supposed to be me up there Margaret was going to moderate and I was going to come up and I was scared shitless I I just I thought I have a lot writing on this and this is my father's going to be there and he's brought what how many 10 15 of his his friends from the retirement center (laughs) and and I I just you know I thought Randall Real quick, can you just come up with some questions and sit up there with me and kind of hold my hand and be my security blanket? And you did, and right beforehand you go, hey, is that character who was on the bus, is that blah, 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 blah from junior high? Like, yeah, yeah, it was. So we had this whole conversation before we got started where you're asking me if, if some of the school kids were actually the people that we knew. And yeah, I'm not gonna name names, but there is one scene, that happens when Luna is, I think, in eighth grade on the bus. And some kids are not being very nice to her. And that that actually did happen to me when I was in sixth grade. And, you know, what what's that old saying? You know, don't don't cross a writer because we'll we'll write about you. And I got to correct the situation. I got to revise it because in real life I didn't do anything. And in the novel, Luna does so she's stronger than I am, or she's stronger than I was at that time, and so there there are several characters who are composite characters, or some of them are just flat out people that I knew and just gave a different name to. Uh, As I said, my great-grandfather, Jesse Baker, is in the book, and I gave his wife the name of my actual great-grandmother, Emily. Um, My dad said to me, are you worried that people are going to think the mother in the novel is your mother? And it, it, that never occurred to me because Claudia is so vastly different from my mother. My mother is more like the grandmother. And so I, I I think that's really where I draw the line, that, that some of the Full River characters, yes, are people, either composites or kind of modeled on people that I know or knew, but that's
2: it. So, yeah, while we're on this, um, you know, Greenville people that might have been influenced, I want to kind of just kind of reintroduce you to this um, person we went to high school with, or I went to high school with. And um, this person wrote this, one of the most important things to remember about anything you do in life is that you take must take pride in the goals you set out to accomplish. Simply wanting something is not what makes people successful. Concentrate on your abilities and perform to the level of those abilities. I thought those words were really prophetic because um, the way you, you know, basically believed in your your novel and you <clears throat> tenaciously stuck with it. So um, I guess the the punchline here is that you actually wrote those words in your parting um, letter to the to the to our graduating class because you were the editor of the Rampant Lines, the the high school newspaper. So.
1: At Rose High, yeah, and and when you when you read that at the ECU reading, I had no idea where you were going. I, I didn't remember any of that, and you set it up much like you did here. But I already I, now I know the punchline, and then I'm just sitting there and going, well, I wonder who he's who's gonna who he's gonna come up with who wrote that, and and then you said me, and I thought, oh my god, how, <laughs> where did you find that for one thing?
2: Well, I I had it in my, you know, archives, I guess, and uh, <laughs> and I remember I scanned them a while back, and then it occurred to me when I was going you, I was like, you know, this might be really good, and, you know, it's almost like a valedictorian speech, you know, it has those kind of advice to the other graduates, you know, and I was like, I bet there's some good stuff in there, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah.
1: I was not valedictorian. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's correct. Did that come from our our high school reunion, our 30th high school reunion?
2: Um yeah, I think that's when I, I mean, was. mean when you were putting together some yeah, stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, so while we're talking about sort of real life characters and and um how they relate or real life people and how they relate to your characters. So in the story, Luna makes a pretty direct association between Jimmy Page and her mother. Of course, she believes that they are her biological parents. Um, How do you, if you do, how do you associate Jimmy Page with your own mother?
1: Well, not in that way. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Jimmy Page did not have carnal knowledge of my mother. Um, I, I associate them because of what a nurturing, supportive parent she was. And You know, I I think about everything. All of my history with Led Zeppelin has to do with my mother. It has to do with my brother Steve, and they're all wrapped up in that. And the first time I saw Jimmy Page in the Led Zeppelin concert movie, the song remains the same. Mom was right in there with me, and and she was not. She was so old fashioned. I mean, she didn't even pierce her ears. She had clip on earrings. She didn't wear makeup except for powder, like pressed powder and lipstick. She was very old fashioned, but she just, you know, she would come along for the ride with whatever her kids were into. And she saw from that first viewing of the song remains the same, oh my God. Well, I guess I'm going to have to watch this and sat there through the the movie. And then it it came on again. There was an encore presentation at seven that night. And she set up her ironing board and watched again and then helped me hang Led Zeppelin posters in my room. was just so much a part of that whole obsession i guess for lack of a better word and so the the book the novel is really a love song to her to my brother to jimmy page and to bill you know who who was who wanted me to to write it um that's the relationship between mom and jimmy page just that kind of secondary, oh, I love my child, and my child loves this, so therefore, I will love this. And she actually, this old-fashioned Southern woman, grew to love a couple of songs of Led Zeppelin's, you know. And with, um, when Page and Plant did their, they came together for the Unplugged, MTV Unplugged thing in, I think, 95, she watched it. In fact, she video recorded it and i found that in her stuff after she died so she just was she wanted to know her children and she knew that steve and i in particular you could get to know us by the music that we loved the, the things that we were obsessed by and so she she wanted to be a part of that so that's the connection
3: Early on, how Luna's quest would resolve itself, or did you figure it out as you were writing?
1: I figured it out as I—I didn't know how I was going to write out myself out of that hole. And (laughs) and I remember—I mean, without giving too much away. When I sent you the chapter where it was resolved, you kind of breathed a sigh of relief. You were like, "I was wondering how you were going to get out of this. What what was going to happen?" And so, no, well, I I knew from the start what it would be and what it wouldn't be, but I I didn't know how I was going to get to that point.
2: I know that you have written short stories and nonfiction pieces um, about other bands. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, that's just,
1: you know, I I came out of the womb, a music lover. That was the first art form that grabbed me. It's, It's what stays with me. And, and so it makes sense to me that, of course, it's going to show up in what I write. And I, I don't really plan it that way. I, I just, I, li- I like that convergence between music and fiction. I, I like seeing how that plays out and, and figuring out a way to, to work with the rhythms of the music, to work with the, um, the imagery of the lyrics of music. And with the lore of, of certain songs, I like that. And so that just appeals to me. And I, I can't seem to get past that yet. So I guess I'll just keep keep working on that until it it runs itself out, you know, it runs its course. But that that's just what I'm interested in. Those two passions have come together. And so of course that's what's gonna come out.
2: Can you talk a little bit about the the way you show on your wall? Which artists you've written
1: about? <laughs> you've been in this study. Um, what goes on the walls of my study are either album covers or posters or something of, of the artists that I've written about. So there's Led Zeppelin, there's there's Graham Parsons, there's, of course, the Beatles and Freddie Mercury and Prince and um, um, Billie Holiday and Patti Smith and... Who else? The Doors, Janis Joplin. So there's there's all that stuff going on in the background. It makes for a very cozy place where I feel inspired. Liza, Margaret, and Randall, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and for being such a big part of my life and the life of searching for Jimmy Page. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. It was fun. We'll take another short break, then we'll be joined by Danny Goldberg dish about his time working for led zeppelin in the 1970s trust me you don't want to miss this
4: Introducing the new Starbucks Pistachio Cream Cold Brew. Silky Pistachio Cream Cold Foam tops our bold, smooth, cold brew for a delicious twist on a favorite winter flavor. Make today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app.
1: And we're back with more Rock is Lit. I'm thrilled to welcome Danny Goldberg to the show. Danny Goldberg is president of Gold Village Entertainment, a New York-based artist management company. He is also the former president of Atlantic Records, chairman of Mercury Record Group, former chairman of Warner Brothers, and chairman of Artemis Records. Danny has worked in the music business as a personal manager, record company president, public relations man, and journalist since the late 1960s. He began his career as a journalist for Billboard magazine, for which he covered the Woodstock Festival in 1969. He is the author of several books, including his most recent, Bloody Crossroads 2020, Art, Entertainment, and Resistance to Trump. From 1973 through 1975, Danny was a PR man for Led Zeppelin, then vice president of Led Zeppelin's Swan Song Records. And there's so much more I could add, including managing Nirvana in the 1990s. But we'll end on that Zeppelin high note and go from there. Welcome to the show, Danny. Thank you. Well, good Lord, your bio reads like my bucket list. Um... (laughs)
0: Well, it's over a course of fifty some years, so <laughs> it, it, it sounds good when you compress it into a couple of minutes.
1: <laughs> Do you ever channel your teenage self and and just think, God, this is crazy what I've accomplished?
0: Um, I'm really grateful to have found a way in the world. You know, I was a, a, not a good student in high school. I, I I was a good test taker, but had a hard time doing my homework. Didn't always get along with teachers. Dropped out of college after a week, and then was just so lucky that I. Stumbled into a clerical job at Billboard and discovered there was something called the music business where you could uh, be involved with artists that you admired. So I, I, I often marvel at how, how fortunate that was for me and how much I appreciate being around artists and all that sort of a thing. And, you know, my teenage self, I was a fan, you know, and I will often just the other day I was listening to a bunch of the records I listened to in high school right in a row. Highway 61, Unlimited, Bring It All Back oh, Home, yeah. Rubber Soul. Yeah. Uh, you know, and some others, just to remember what it felt like to be a fan because there's something about music that does take you back to that time when you mm. first heard it but so i i I really try to be grateful every day that I get to be around rock and roll and call it work. There are days when the stresses or anxiety uh overcome me but but uh, a lot of the time I appreciate it, yeah.
1: Well, you've known and worked with so many music icons, and I'd love to ask you about all of them, but since the focus of this show is, is sort of a celebration of the one-year birthday of my novel, Searching for Jimmy Page, we're going to focus on Led Zeppelin.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm so great. I'm so flattered to uh, be chosen to talk to you about it, and congratulations on it.
1: Well, thank you, and I am so grateful to you for coming on board here. So, tell me about the first time you met Led Zeppelin.
0: I met Led Zeppelin in the um, early part, I think it was March, but maybe it was February of 1973. I had uh, a couple of months earlier started working. I was 22. And a couple of months earlier, I had gotten a job at a public relations company called Salters and Roskin, which was a big showbiz PR firm. They had Frank Sinatra, Barbara Streisand, Ringling Brothers, wow. Circus, all these sort of establishment entertainment clients. And and Lee Salters, who ran it, hired me to be kind of the long-haired guy that understood rock and roll because it was exploding <laughs> as a business and therefore as a source of PR business. And uh, he asked me one day, uh, do we want Led Zeppelin? And I said, uh, yes. And he said, well, you better come with me to the meeting because I'm the Guy Lombardo generation. I don't understand that music. So <laughs> so they flew me and him to Paris uh, where the band was doing a show at the uh, Palais de Sport. And we stayed, uh, well, I can't believe I'm forgetting the name of, of the hotel we stayed at. It was a very nice hotel in Paris where the <laughs> sure. band was staying. Yeah. And, um, and uh, you know, the, the first day we met with, we were there a few days. I know we saw the show. And then we met with Peter Grant, who had managed Led Zeppelin, who managed Led Zeppelin for their entire career. And he was a... Um, Legendary figure in the music business for a number of reasons. One was he was physically huge
4: mm-hmm. 300
0: pounds, former professional wrestler, very intimidating uh, physically, and a cockney, street smart, you know, said to know British gangsters type of a guy. And another reason he was celebrated, he was very well known, was because he was incredibly smart at understanding how to represent an artist in the early 1970s music business. He really. Mm -hmm. knew that Zeppelin had a unique value, and he renegotiated all their deals with concert promoters and booking agents and record companies in a level that at the time was groundbreaking in terms of artists' empowerment and the share of the pie that they got. And um, then after after talking to him, uh, then either the next day we met with the band, and it was about a 45-minute meeting, uh, you know, um, and... um, you know, just sort of uh, understanding what they were looking for. It, in my recollection, again, it's a very long time ago. And I get confused between the stories I've told about it and the reality. And yeah. memory is, is is a fragile thing. But, you know, my memory of it was that Robert was the most sort of uh, uh, um, outspoken about wanting an American publicist. You know, Led Zeppelin, uh, by this time, had put out four albums. The most recent album had been the one with Stairway to Heaven on it. And they were about to release Houses of the Holy, which, which I, by the time that came out, I was their publicist in America. And, but they, I think they already probably finished recording it. I don't know if it was all mixed or anything, but it was already, you know, they, they, they knew those songs and that was going to be the next cycle. They were never a band in those early years that got good press. It's hard to believe, given their mythological status in the rock uh, world today. But in the early few Zeppelin albums, you know, Rolling Stone was the most important American rock magazine. They never gave them good reviews. Nor would they give Houses of the Holy a good review. The headline of the R- Rolling Stone review for Houses of the Holy was "A Limp Blimp," which. Oh my know, God. I'm a fan of Rolling Stone. I'm grateful for. The existence of Rolling Stone Rolling Stone's been good to me on so many levels, but man, they were wrong about that and yeah, uh, yeah. I love Houses of the Holy. It's actually my favorite Zeppelin album because of course, that's when I first worked with them, so it has this double meaning to me but they and and in the u k they didn't get good press either. A lot of it had to do with the quirkiness of generations and and you know a lot of these rock journalists uh, started their career. In the late '60s, say '66, '67, '68, and and the initial uh, pantheon were the Beatles, the Stones, Dylan, uh, and uh, and um, the Who, and Cream. You know, and there was a lot of competition between Eric Clapton and Jimmy Page, or at least there was in Jimmy's mind. They had both been members of the Yardbirds, as had been Jeff Beck, and uh, you know, Cream came first. And Zeppelin initially was treated as somebody that was sort of imitating them, which, again, in retrospect, I still love Cream, but yeah. you know, Led Zeppelin, you know, one of, far more influential band in the history of rock and roll. Yeah. But at the time, they just didn't get good press. And then Peter Grant, after the first album or two of this, just said, the hell with it. Let's just not talk to the press. So they did the first couple of years, they, they got bad press. The next couple of years, they got very, they just kind of ignored the press. And then in 72, the Rolling Stones had done a tour where the writer uh, Truman Capote was on the road with them and writing about them and got an enormous amount of publicity. And I think what Robert said was that it really bugged him because Zeppelin statistically by that time was actually selling more records and was a bigger band than the Rolling Stones. They didn't have the longevity, but in the context of early 1973, Led Zeppelin was 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 just bigger in terms of any mathematical metrics that existed. And uh, he just was irritated, and he thought that his parents didn't know how well he was doing, and they you know, really wanted credit for what they had accomplished. Again, they just had the Stairway to Heaven album. And um, uh, Bonham absolutely understood it. You know, John Bonham was a very complicated guy, but when he was sober, he was articulate and gracious. You know, he was a bad drunk, as has been widely chronicled. And Jimmy did not do too much talking in the first meeting, but it was obvious that he was first among equals in that particular situation. And, you know, kind of went along with the idea of us. And then, you know, we were the publicist and I was the publicist because Lee Salters really, I think he only met them one other time or two other times, but it was my project. He was dealing with the older, more established show business people. And uh, the band, uh, luckily for me, liked having me around. Again, I was young. I had the long hair. Uh, and, and, and I, and I, and I, and I made them feel more comfortable than the typical yeah. people that would wear suits or be business types. And I had been well-trained by Lee about the mechanics of how to do publicity. And, um, and the 73 tour, uh, ended up doing very, very well. But, you know, the, the, um, when I had uh, first met the Peter, you know, on a plane with Lee, he said, tell me about Zeppelin. I said, look, I spoke to some of their publicists and some of the journalists who knew them in the early days. And. Now the reputation of kind of being barbarians on the road. There had been this one female journalist named uh, Ellen Sander. Anyway, so I told Peter, I said, "You know, the reputation is barbarians," so and he just giggled and he said, "Well, you know, we're just mild barbarians." You know, <laughs> and uh, then it came up in the meeting with with the good band, and and Robert said, "Look, we were young." By this time, he was only I think twenty five, but when he joined the band, I think he was nineteen. Mm -hmm. you know or something along those lines so he said oh we were young we're different now we know how to be whatever and in in truth robert was a very sophisticated at dealing with the press and uh he was the main person who did most of the interviews jimmy would do some if it was important enough and he was also you know highly intelligent he was the Mm -hmm. he put the band together you know and he produced it and he wrote the music robert wrote the lyrics uh, and he was kind of the first among equals and for certain, uh, articles he would do interviews, but Robert did more, uh, but that was kind of it. And so I was then, that was the publicist. And the next time I saw them was, uh, when they arrived in New York for the 73 tour, which, uh, you know, it's, it's all in the record somewhere, but I, I, I think it was May they played, uh, Atlanta stadium and then a night or two later, Tampa stadium, and those were two giant shows. They were both sold out. Atlanta was 50,000 people. Tampa was 55,000, 56,000, like 56,800. The reason I know the number is because I was trying to figure out how do I create good publicity for Led Zeppelin when the, the snobby rock critics, many of whom were my friends, didn't take them seriously. And it was obvious that the best quote-unquote angle was to focus on their audience and to say, yeah. you whatever you think of them, they're, they're the biggest. And then Tampa was the second show, which turned out to be a thousand more people than it had seen the Beatles at Chase Stadium because Tampa Stadium wow. had a thousand more seats. And I could write a press release saying the biggest audience ever for a one artist show in the history of the music business, even though there'd been festivals with multiple artists in terms of just one headline act. And that uh, you know, was a slow news day, and the UPI was one of the wire services that went into hundreds of newspapers around the world. And I, I hand-delivered a press release to the guy at UPI office in Tampa. And that became uh, the story, Bigger Than the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, Biggest Record. And that set the tone for the whole cycle. And, you know, uh, the, the band really never talked to me about it. I didn't know if they liked that approach or not, although they did hire me a year later just to work for them. But when they did this um, reunion concert, um, you would know when it was. Bonham was already dead. Two thousand seven. Yeah, two thousand and seven. I went to that. They were kind enough to get me tickets. Ugh. And they opened it with a video that included uh, TV I coverage of yep. bigger than the Beatles. So I said, "Well, I guess they liked it." You know, <laughs> <laughs> I, guess I finally so. got my. I finally got my response. Uh, you know, thirty some years uh, later. You know, this is Pulse. Here is news editor, Scott Schuster.
5: Good evening. It really was the biggest crowd ever assembled for a single performance in one place in the entire history of the world. It was tonight, and it was in Tampa. The name of the group, Led Zeppelin. They've been around for years, popular with the acid rock crowd, big on album sales. Tonight, they broke the world record set by the Beatles and Channel 13's John Jones watched it happen.
1: Well, tell me about the Keysar Stadium show. That was also on that '73 tour. And there, there are these iconic photos that Neil Preston took. Yeah, yeah. There's one of Robert holding the dove. The yeah, dove is yeah, in his yeah. hand. And then there's there's one of Jimmy with his arms outstretched. He's all dressed in white, and his lips are pursed. And and that actually is a major motif in my novel. So, right. what, what was what was that that show atmosphere like?
0: Well. Um yeah. Neil Preston was, I had felt they were always complaining about photos. So I said, why don't you just have your own photographer, put them on the road. And we made a deal with Neil, which is, look, we, we can throw out any photos we don't like. So they have approval of them. But once they approve the photos, you own them. So Neil, a couple of years later, I saw him driving around a Mercedes in LA and he said, Thank you. This is thank what, you. <laughs> this is what the Led Zeppelin photos did. And to this day, wow. he's a very nice guy. He wouldn't let me pay him for, for use of a photo of, of me and Robert for one of my books because of mm-hmm. that. Anyway, you know, Kizar Stadium was another stadium show. There weren't a lot uh, because there weren't that many stadiums that, you know, accommodated music. That was near the end of the tour in 73. They played another Kizar Stadium show in 77 that I was not at where there was a unpleasant incident where they got into a physical altercation with people that yeah. worked for Bill Graham and they were going to be arrested. And that that I wasn't there for. But 73, I was there for. You know, it was another stadium show. Peter was always kind of arguing. Bill Graham was, you know, the most well-known uh, concert promoter in the United States. He had created the Fillmore in the Fillmore East. And right. he he was particularly powerful in San Francisco, where he lived. And so he did all the big shows there. And he was, uh, I love Bill Graham, I miss him, and he was very, very nice to me. But him and Peter Grant were always arguing, and these ridiculous ego battles about things that probably weren't very important. And so there was a general sour uh, feeling in terms of uh, how Peter was feeling. But the band, uh, you know, uh, were real, um, took their role as performers very seriously. You know, a lot of publicity about Zeppelin focuses on the drugs and the partying and the girls. And, yeah. And that's all true, you know, and you know, they <laughs> the plane and, you know, and they were, um, you know, they did, did have, uh, you know, kind of stereotypical rock and roll fun on the, on the road uh, in the standards of the time. But they were incredibly serious about getting the sound right, about yeah. getting the, uh, uh, they were very self-critical if they felt they didn't do a good show. Uh, Bonham, uh, you know, would always do his long sound check to make sure the drum sounded right. They cared about the lighting cues and the amplifiers and every detail of it. And as a result of that, they were um, very consistent in terms of the quality of the shows. I would say ninety percent of the shows were excellent. There were a couple that weren't quite as strong because you know somebody wasn't feeling well or something. But in general, they 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 uh, they were very um, professional in terms of what they did on stage. They were very conscious of the fact that the fans, you know, were gonna judge them by what they did and that they were gonna judge themselves by it. And and I I don't remember seeing any bad Led Zeppelin shows. I, I would hear I know there was one or two where Jimmy had hurt his finger. He felt bad about this or Robert had a right. cold. But I found them to be very, very consistent and that show is no exception. You know, the fact that Neil captured moments, you know, has to do with Him being a very gifted photographer and an outdoor venue gives you certain opportunities to do things you can't do indoors. But as a musical performance, it was very similar to all the other Zeppelin shows on the 73 tour.
1: Did they get stage fright before they went on?
0: Uh, Bonham sometimes got anxious before he went on. Uh, The other three uh, did not exhibit to me any signs of stage fright, but Bonham could get very nervous. uh, and uh, he he carried an enormous weight on the tour because he would do this long drum solo, fifteen or twenty minutes, called Moby Dick. So he yes. was never off stage. The uh responsibility for that, and so he he would get anxiety. I don't know if I would call it stage fright, but he would definitely have anxiety. uh You know, uh the others never showed anxiety. Mm. I I can't read their minds, but you know, mm-hmm. again, they by the time I worked with them, they'd already had uh, they they'd been Led Zeppelin for four years, right? So you know you know they they'd done hundreds of shows around the world and had a lot of success, so. Uh, you know they were they were pretty confident, but they were also very well aware of hitting a bad note or any any little problem because they were musicians and they could hear things that the rest of us don't hear.
1: We know Peter Grant's reputation, and we've already talked a little bit about that. How was he with you personally? I mean, was he this intimidating guy who you know was difficult to work with, or, or what was he like?
0: Well. He could definitely be intimidating. I never wanted him to be angry. He was just so physically big. Just yeah. sitting next to him in a limo, if it took a left turn and, you know, he was, like, crushed <laughs> against me, I would, like, you know, literally not be able to move. And him and his tour manager, the band tour manager, who was their tour manager for their own Richard Cole, yeah. had a swagger about them that was very intimidating but they treated me as a member of the family honestly they they were they were good to me peter was generous with me i learned a lot from him he put up with a certain amount of youthful temperament from me and uh you know i uh, i saw the good side of him i kind of saw the side of him that the band saw i i know that he could be very difficult but i i was the beneficiary i think they liked having this younger guy at that particular time in my life, I was, you know, when I was a teenager, I had done a lot of drugs. But by the time I was in the music business in my twenties, I was often the, the, the one, you know, non-stoned person in certain situations. <laughs> you were the DD. And they liked yeah, yeah, and 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 I think they were happy with the way that the press changed when I got involved, which was a lot of that was, just, yeah, I was riding the wave of the natural course of their career, but I was associated with it. So, you know, I worked with them from uh, you know, it was 3 years. It was really May of 76 when I left them. And uh, you know, during those 3 years, you know, I, I have uh, uh you know, uh, good feelings about Peter Grant. Uh, I think that the the um it's no secret that he became a, a cocaine abuser and and it really affected uh, his uh made him more short-tempered and a little erratic as he got older, and I uh, that energy made me uncomfortable as time went by but uh i have to say i i owe a great deal to him uh by he gave me that opportunity that to this day i get to talk about it. almost 50 years later you know you want to talk to me about this how many things do we get to talk about for 50 years in a lifetime and uh i also develop, internalized his attitude about what it was to manage an artist and to 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 really be a uh, advocate for the artist not a mediator between the artist and promoters, record companies, and so forth, but an advocate, that the artist is always right, so to speak, if you're their manager. And I still internalize that to this day. I I owe him a great deal. But, you know, uh, being on his bad side was no fun.
1: Yeah, that's what I hear. So Richard Cole could could be a tricky person to work with, too, as I understand it. And he had a cocaine problem as well.
0: Well, Richard Cole, it's interesting, because Richard I saw um, about a year ago. Just before he just before he died, I saw him six weeks before he died. He he was terminally ill, and but he was just so alive still when I got to hang mm. out with him in in his London flat um, last year. And um, you know he became sober for the mm-hmm. last thirty years of his life and became one of the most generous people. Uh, you know, just a sweetheart. But uh, when I worked for Zeppelin, he was not yet sober. And uh, he was Peter's, uh, you know, right hand guy and very, uh, if anything, uh, Richard had uh, better connections with gangsters than uh, than uh, Peter did and uh, was certainly not afraid of a physical alteration. But again, he took his cues from Peter in the band. So he he was uh, I I got along fine with him. But again, I wouldn't want to be on his bad side. Not in those days. But 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 Richard had a fantastic uh, second act of his life, you know. Uh, really, uh, you know, uh, being a tour manager for other artists, uh, being a sober companion for a lot of very well-known movie stars, uh, and and just uh, just like a walking example of what twelve-step program can do for somebody. Wow. But uh, back in the day, he was that uh, they were quite a fearsome twosome. The two Peter, <laughs> Peter and Richard, with their Cockney accents and their swagger and yeah. their ability to throw a punch if if, if provoked.
1: Well, that definitely comes out in the movie, The Song Remains the Same. It's yeah, The Song Remains
0: the gangsters. Same. You see that, that scene of oh, yeah. Peter. But again, what is he yelling at the guy about? He's yelling at a guy who was selling counterfeit Led Zeppelin TV T-shirts where Zeppelin wasn't getting any of the money. Yeah. So he wasn't just picking on a guy because he didn't like the way he looked. He was he was uh, berating someone that, in his mind, was stealing from his his boys. And so, you know, that was kind of his job. Uh,
1: so how did that film come about? I, I know that the the concert footage was shot at Madison Square Garden in yeah. 1973. Yeah, yeah. I, I was so, there
0: I, in those shows. Those were the shows. That was the tour I was doing publicity the first year. So I was at the garden shows where those shows were shot. Mm. And then they did later on these pickup shots of the so-called fantasy sequences. I didn't yeah. have anything to do with that. And they went through a few different filmmakers. I, I, I don't really remember the details. I'm sure it's all easy to find out of whoever shot it. I think was different from whoever finished it. And like you say, those shows were in '73, but the movie doesn't come out till '76. Yeah. Uh, and they wrestled it to the ground. Uh, when I first saw the movie, I saw it at a screening with Peter and Ahmed Ernigan, who is chairman of Atlantic Records and you know legendary character in the history of the music business. And um, well, I actually saw it. Twice. I saw one. Ver- yeah, yeah. No, I I saw it that time, and I was kind of disappointed in it compared to my memory of those shows. I didn't really think it captured the intensity. But uh, clearly, uh, I was a minority. That film inspired uh, many, many hundreds, probably, of rock bands and millions of fans, and it was was uh you know one of the best film documents of Zeppelin, Uh, there was a DVD box set that Jimmy remixed the music for and remastered it that came out sometime later, I think maybe in the, uh, I don't remember when DVD started, but either the 80s or, you know, I'm thinking the 80s or the early 90s. And to me, those performances were much more faithful to the level of intensity and brilliance of the band than The Song Remains the Same was. But The Song Remains the Same has become a, a, a classic because it captured and documented that moment mm-hmm. in Zeppelin's career. And, uh, you know, I appreciate it a lot more in retrospect than I did at the time. I, I was kind of underwhelmed with it because I had been at those shows. But, but, uh, but that was a myopic view. It's good that they made the movie. It's it's always good to document things because time passes quickly. And again, I tried to learn from that in terms of some of the artists I work with, that you document things when they're happening however you can. Imperfect documentation is better than none because a few years pass and that moment is gone.
1: Well, that movie means a lot to me. That's, that's the first time. My, my brother, Steve, who's 10 years older, was a drummer in various rock bands in my hometown, and he idolized John Bonham. So I yeah. was aware of the band at a very young age, but it wasn't until I was 15 and I came home, um, my mother and I came home from church of all places, and my brother was watching the song Remains the Same on MTV, and I I took one look at the screen and had this visceral reaction to Jimmy Page, yeah. and that was it, it was over, I was 15, that was it, the Messiah had arrived. and you know he really cultivates that kind of dark image in that movie especially in the beginning sequence when the camera follows him he's sitting on a blanket and he turns around his eyes are red (laughs) and then his fantasy sequence at um baleskin house climbing up the mountain were you aware of of his interest in crowley and the occult and and all of that kind of thing
0: Yeah, I was aware of it. I mean, it's not something that uh, I remember talking to him much about, Um, you know, but I was well aware of it. I think he owned a house that Crowley had owned, Yeah, you know, was interested in it. I I never got any evidence that it was uh, that big a part of how he looked at himself day to day. You know, he was he was a lot about music. I mean, Jimmy Page and Robert, they all were music freaks, very knowledgeable about music and listened a lot to music. But I was aware that he was interested in that. And that's part of the mythology of Zeppelin, that vaguely mystical sense. I think Robert, Robert's lyrics fueled that also in songs like Stairway, L- Lyrics to Stairway to Heaven, and particularly some of the songs on Led Zeppelin three and um you know, they were all influenced by the 60s. You know, they they just came along a little bit late, but they, they came of age at that time of the Haight-Ashbury. They loved playing San Francisco, I can tell you that. That was always a high point for them because of that and uh, the influence of psychedelics and all that. Uh, so, you know, there was a and and I think on the album covers, they really, they had this team of Poe and Storm. I forget their real name, but that's what everyone called them and the company was called Hypnosis, H-I-P-G-N-O-S-I-S, like the word mm. "gnostic," you know, which is kind of a spiritual word. And they did these uh, album covers that also created a sort of vaguely cosmic affect around the band. And 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 Jimmy's uh, skill as a, you know, he's one of the great rock guitarists of all time. I mean, absolutely he's number one, two, three, four, or five. He's certainly in anybody's top ten. Uh, and and, and wrote that music, too, Um, so and produced the records, really. They were Mm -hmm. engineers and co-producers, but Jimmy was, you know, in control of those recordings. Uh, You know, so that was sort of part of it, but it was, um, you know, I'd say 75% rock and roll showbiz and 25%, you know, they were not doing any rituals on the road or, you know... (laughs) occult Not books like, you know there weren't like occult books or esoteric books <laughs> on lying around the hotel rooms or anything like that right but i do think he had a real interest in it and i think that was uh, uh i think a lot of artists were ex- exploring different spiritual paths obviously sure. the beatles were the path, path breakers with that with george harrison's interest in uh, the, the religions of india and some of the yeah. teachers of india and that just sort of became part of what it was to be a rock band in the early seventies, you know in late sixties and Zeppelin internalized that, and it was part of their vibe, you know no question about it but i I think the music itself is the source of the power, not sure. the, not the not the any particular book that jimmy read he He's a real life musical genius that's that's his that's his uh secret superpower as they say yeah and and you know. Look, he discovered Robert Plant and John Bonham were totally unknown when they joined Led Zeppelin. John Paul Jones was known. Jonesy and Jimmy were older than Bonzo and Robert, like six or seven years older. So Jonesy and Jimmy had played on dozens of big hit singles and rock records in England for people like Donovan and
2: mm-hmm.
0: a zillion other artists and were known commodities. Jimmy had been in the Yardbirds. But... but um Bonham and and Plant, Jimmy went out to the country and found them and saw in them what they became. And and that was the magic of Led Zeppelin was not only Jimmy Page, but it was that all four of them were great at what they did. You know, and uh, really, that's a very, uh, that's why that band became what it did. And that was his curation so not only did he write the music and produce the records and have this vibey look on stage and knowing how to be theatrical with the uh, violin bow and all that and and to wear cool clothes on stage but he also had the vision of putting that particular band together
1: well how did you move from being pr man to vice president of swan song
0: well i got a phone call and uh you know peter grant said uh, come over meet with me and you know, he said Jimmy he likes you, and you know I think Peter would always attribute decisions to Jimmy. I think it was more Peter's decision, but it made me feel really good. I didn't even know Jimmy had an opinion about me at that <laughs> point. And we would like you. We're starting this label, and we'd like you, you, you. I'd like you to be my ambassador in America. I said, okay. Well, what will I? Do? He said, well, I guess publicity. I said, well, if I'm doing these other things, uh, let, uh, could I just have the title of vice president? So he said, yeah, sure. So. I gave myself the title, Vice there President of Swansong, his, with his blessing, yeah. and I was sort of his representative in America for certain things. He had a lawyer. I didn't negotiate money or anything like that. He had a lawyer, a longtime lawyer named Steve Weiss, passed away now, tough, tough smart lawyer, um, who 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 did the deals? Mm-hmm. But in terms of putting a bad company tour together, you know, bad company was the first group who put out an album on the Swan Song label, putting together their first American tour, overseeing the publicity, and being a liaison to Atlantic, which distributed Swan Song and which provided ninety percent of the label services. Swan Song was a was really more of a label than a company an A&R source, a source of product, but, you know, the marketing was well done. So, you know, liaison to the radio promotion people and advertising people and so on. And it was uh, an incredible job to get when I was, uh, uh, you know, 23. And uh, like I said, to this day, I still uh, dine out on it. But uh, <laughs> it was really because they were happy with what had happened with the publicity on the 73 tour. They were expanding to have this label. And, I was the person in America, so I just did it for the U.S. I, I wasn't global, but the U.S. Is a pretty big place, and it's my home country, and so it, 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 that 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 was my that was my job. He was the boss, but he was in London most of the time.
1: Okay, so you stopped working with the band in seventy five, and then of no
0: 76.
1: 76. Yeah. Okay. Yeah,
0: yeah, it was May of seventy six. Okay. I know you had said seventy five, but actually, it was May seventy six when I
1: okay. Moved. And so, of course, tragically, John Bonham died in 1980, and the band decided not to go on. Did Did you yeah. think they made the right decision, or do you think they, they should have pulled a who and gotten somebody else?
0: Well, I mean, I think they should do. I, I, I think Robert Plant uh, uh, wasn't going to do it. It was really Robert's decision, because obviously you can't have Led Zeppelin without lead singer.
3: yeah
0: It's not led, you know, it's a different replacing a lead singer. It's it's been done, but uh, you know, Van Halen did it and ACDC did it, but 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 you know, uh Zeppelin was so identified mm-hmm. with those particular people. Uh Bonham was so central to what they did. And um, you know, Robert just wouldn't do it, I think to this day. Uh, That's why there's not been a Zeppelin revival. There's plenty of A-plus drummers. I think Dave Grohl or a lot of great drummers would go out and be Zeppelin's drummer for a tour. Robert doesn't want to do it. And you know what? He doesn't have to. He's proven that he does not need the band to have a very successful, creative uh, musical career. And... uh, so, you know, I, I wouldn't say whatever they want to do, that's the right decision. Yeah. They're the artists. Uh, they, they, I, I, I'm pro-artist. I'm not, I don't think the fans get to tell the artists what to do. The fans get to tell the artists that they like what they did yes. or not. But they, you know, but the, ultimately the artists, the great artists are interdirected and Robert just didn't want to do it. You know, and and I, uh, and I uh, have to say of all the people that have left a big band, I can't think of anyone who's had a more spectacular or varied, um, uh, you know, creative uh, and successful post superstar band career than, than Robert Plant. Stevie Nicks, who I also worked with, you know, did very well outside of Fleetwood Mac, although she also did things with Fleetwood Mac. You know, Phil Collins came out of Genesis and had a very big solo career. But boy, it's a short list. Obviously, Clapton, whatever he does, is he's still Eric Clapton. But Robert's on that short list. And, uh, you know, it's an extraordinary career he's had. And it couldn't happen to a nicer person. I mean, I I just love Robert Clann.
1: Well, that's good to hear. Nice to hear. He's a nice guy. He seems to be. He is.
0: He is a nice guy. I don't think there's any debate about that. He is really, you know, he's a rock star, and they they bring with them decades of being treated like rock stars, mm-hmm. and if you know, but he he's a nice guy.
1: Do you keep in touch with any of the people in Led Zeppelin at this point?
0: Uh, well, I've seen, I've bumped into Robert a few times. Um, it's been quite a while since I was in touch with. Jonesy or Jimmy, although Jimmy sent a nice uh, word through an intermediary about uh, bumping into geniuses a few years ago. I haven't actually seen him since, oh god, probably the nineties when I was in wow. at Atlantic. That we put out a Page Plant album that was in the nineties, mm-hmm. and I was the record comedy president. Now, which was a weird yeah. you know, new role that they, you know, but um then um Robert, I see because he is uh, spends a lot of time in America. He loves the Americana idiom. And uh, one of the, or I still have a small management company now. And one of my clients, the client I've worked with the longest is uh, Steve Earle. And uh, Steve and Robert have gotten to know each other uh, and uh, they know a lot of the same people in common. You know, Patty, Robert was, I think, married to, but certainly living with yeah. Patty Griffin for several years. And Steve is very old friends of hers. And there's been benefit shows. There was this refugee show that Robert and Steve and Emmy Lou Harris and others did where Robert sang with an acoustic guitar. Incredible. Wow. Uh, just a few years ago. So I've run into him a few times in the last few years, and he's always like super, super friendly. Like I said, he's a nice guy. And uh, we exchanged emails a couple of years ago. So I certainly wouldn't say I'm in touch with him, but I've been more in touch with him than than with the others. And I did see, like I said, I went to see Richard Cole before he died. That's nice. So, you know, it's like like, um, think of your best friends in high school uh, you don't usually see them later in your life. But if you do see them, it triggers memories and, and hopefully some warmth. So it's that kind of a thing. I had a professional relationship with him. I wasn't a social friend. So when not working with somebody professionally, then you don't have the professional right. relationship anymore. But, uh, you know, it's still a, a good vibe. Uh, certainly with Robert, again, and I would I would hope it would be the same with Jimmy or Jonesy. Jonesy, I never had a bad word with. He was very shy. Musical genius, but wasn't involved with the publicity, which was my main role. And Jimmy, I spent different moments with, but he was still complicated and a little hard to connect mm. with. But obviously, obviously brilliant. And, uh, you know, what can you say? He's Jimmy Page. I mean, there's there's a very short list of iconic names of the last 50 or 60 years in music. And, and he's there's no list you could make without including the name Jimmy Page on it.
1: Absolutely. Well, it sounds like it was an incredible experience for you, and I really appreciate your sharing that with me. Thank you so much for being on the show, Danny.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me. Congratulations on the one-year anniversary of your of your novel, and uh, rock and roll.
1: Find out more about Danny Goldberg at his website, dannygoldberg.com, where you can buy his books and read some of his kazillion articles. You can also find Danny on Twitter, at dannygoldberg67. If you're interested in learning more about my novel, Searching for Jimmy Page, check out my website at christyalexanderhallberg.com, where you can hear Alice Cooper give the book a shout-out on his syndicated radio show, Nights with Alice Cooper. Be on the lookout for the audiobook version coming out very soon. At 6 p.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, October 27, I'll be reading from Searching for Jimmy Page and talking with Cheryl J. Fish about her new novel, Off the Yoga Mat, at Malaprop's Bookstore in Asheville, North Carolina. The event is online and free, but you need to register to attend. The link to register is in the show notes. Finally, check out the Rocky's Lip Vault for bonus material from this episode, including my responses to readers' questions about searching for Jimmy Page that folks were kind enough to message me, and an outtake from my interview with Danny Goldberg concerning his thoughts about such Led Zeppelin nonfiction books as The Notorious Hammer of the Gods, plus a few anecdotes involving a young Cameron Crowe. Tune for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. If you like what you hear, subscribe, follow, and spread the word. And check out the Rock is Lit vault on my website for news, bonus material, and outtakes from episodes. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit.
0: Rock is Lit.